Well, this summer, while Reverend O'Grady is on a well-deserved sabbatical riding his motorcycle, it's a joy for me to be able to be here for five Sundays and preach on the theme of the parables of Jesus, and it's called Reframing, and Tom Erickson is going to be here later this summer preaching on this same theme, and the seminarian's going to be preaching on it. But the idea that the parables of Jesus are so profound and significant that they actually reframe the way we look at life. This parable today, although familiar, might miss us. And my prayer is that we would so internalize the truth, very simple truth of this scripture, that the way we live our lives and think about our lives and look at our lives might never be the same again. Look with me at Matthew 25 verses 1 to 13, a parable Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But when the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps... As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a shout, look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Well, while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching, that these words might not simply be human words or human opinions, but by a miracle of your grace, these words might become your living word to us, and we know that they will, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus Christ. And may all God's people say, amen. The clock of life is wound but once. And no one has the power to know just when the hand will stop at late or early hour. Now is the time we have. Live, love, work with a will. Don't wait until tomorrow, for the clock may then be still. One of my favorite weddings that I ever performed was a wedding on St. Patrick's Day for Kathy and Jim in New York City. Kathy and Jim were very well prepared for the wedding. They had all the details and plans thought through beautifully. But one thing they hadn't calculated was that on St. Patrick's Day, the St. Patrick's Day parade was in New York City and was going to come right down Fifth Avenue, right beside the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church, where I would be performing the wedding exactly at the time of the wedding. They hadn't calculated all that. So I went out the morning of the wedding in my robe and my stole, and um, a Catholic um, 
police officer named Captain O'Malley came up to me and he said, uh, what can we do for your father? And I said, I wanted to say, kiss my ring, my son, but I didn't say that. <laughs> but I said, I've got a problem. I've got a bride over there at the St. Regis Hotel, right catty corner across the street, and I need to get her and her family and the flower girl and the bridesmaids across from the St. Regis over here to the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Can you help me do that? I don't know how to do it in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And the Captain O'Malley said, oh, Father, don't worry about it. Everybody loves a wedding in New York City. It's going to be fabulous. Just when you're ready and the bride's ready, just stand there on the steps of the St. Regis, wave your hand. I'll notice you. I'll be keeping my eye out for you. And we'll stop the parade, and you can walk across the street in front of all the bands and the floats and everything. And I said, you would really do that? He said, oh, yes. Everybody loves a wedding in New York. So I went over to the bride and assured her that everything was going to be fine. And I stood on the steps of the St. Regis and I raised my hand and the parade stopped. Captain O'Malley blew his whistle. The float stopped. The, the marching band stopped. And the bride and her father and mother and me and the bridesmaids and the flower girl all walked across Fifth Avenue right in the middle of the St. Patrick's Day Parade. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. And I felt like Charlton Heston and Moses uh, in the Ten Commandments. I never had such power, you know. But everybody in New York was excited. I thought they would be bothered by this interruption. But they loved it. People applauded and they cheered and they serenaded the bride, Kathy. And little girls ran out onto Fifth Avenue and they wanted photos with the bride in her beautiful gown. All of the guys, or many guys who were standing around and they looked at this beautiful bride and they yelled to her, don't do it. But the parents and the bride and the bridesmaids all got into all this adulation. And when we got into the narthex, about to go down the aisle, I said to everybody, now, we got to all calm down because we've had all this adulation. We've got to get serious about the wedding. And I said to the father, now, remember, when I say, uh, who gives Kathy to be married to Jim, your response is, her mother and I do. He said, Tom, don't worry about it. It's going to be a piece of cake. I mean, after all the adulation I've got, I could do no wrong. And I said, now, now just concentrate on this, you know. I'll just have to say, her mother and I do. So he was a little cocky when he got in there. And I said, who gives Catherine to be married to Jim? And he said, my mother and I do. <laughs> it's a true story. I will tell you, it was a little icy in the first pew when he went back to sit with his wife. After the wedding, Jim and Kathy came out onto Fifth Avenue and they stood on the steps and they greeted their guests. And the parade, as they were going down Fifth Avenue, they all turned to Jim and Kathy and one band serenaded them with a rousing rendition of New York, New York. They all kind of bowed down to the bride and groom. It was wonderful. And the joy in that wedding was palpable. Is it any wonder? that when Jesus had to describe what heaven is like, he chose a wedding feast. Because a wedding is consummate joy. It's a great celebration. And how do you put into words what heaven is like? So when Jesus thought about it, he thought the greatest way to describe it is it's like a wedding. It's like ultimate, consummate joy. But in this parable, there's one little feature of a Middle Eastern wedding that Jesus makes the focus of his parable. And the point of the parable ought to bring all of us up short and give us some urgency. 
It's interesting that when he told this parable, all the Middle Easterners in that time frame in the first century would have understood what he was saying. But we've kind of lost this in the 20th century because we plan weddings months and years ahead. But in that day, it was not quite as well planned. And actually, the one feature of this wedding was that nobody, nobody knew the exact day and time and hour of the wedding except the groom. The groom knew, but the bride really didn't know. The bride got ready. They knew the approximate time of the wedding. And the bride got ready, and the bridesmaids got ready, and everybody was set. They were all getting dressed for the wedding. And they all trimmed their lamps. They got oil for their lamps. They were all getting ready. But the only one who knew when the wedding would be would be the groom. And the groom would send a henchman ahead of him, and the henchman would call out, Behold the bridegroom. And then everybody knew within a few minutes the bridegroom was going to come and everybody was interested in that and the bridegroom would be ready and every, all the guests would be ready. And the, the groom loved to play with this a little bit. He loved to kind of pull a trick on the bride and come at an hour she didn't expect and he would kind of try to catch her napping. I can see from the looks of the women in the congregation, you don't like this practice much, do you? that the woman had to be ready and the man determined when the wedding was going to be. But that's the way it was in the Middle East at that time. And the man came whenever he wanted and then the woman had to be ready. So the groom comes in the parable and the foolish maidens, five maidens are foolish. They don't have their oil. They're not prepared. They're not ready. And you can't get ready at the last minute. So the, the foolish maidens said to the wise maidens who had their oil, they were ready, they were prepared. The foolish maidens said to the wise maidens, could we borrow some of your oil? And the, the wise maidens said, no, we, we've prepared, we've got our oil ready. We don't have enough for us and enough for you. And so you've got to go into town to buy your oil. And while the foolish bridesmaids are in town buying the oil, the bridegroom comes. And when the bridegroom comes, the wedding is to begin. And then those foolish maidens came back and the bride had come and the bridegroom had come. He got his bride. They went into the wedding feast and the door is shut. And those foolish maidens were left outside. They missed the joy of the celebration. Now the profound point in this parable is there are some things you can't borrow from someone else. Isn't it true? You can't borrow integrity. You can't borrow character. You can't borrow values. You can't borrow somebody else's standards. You can't borrow somebody else's discipline or somebody else's commitment to excellence. You can't borrow their ethics. You can't borrow somebody else's leadership. You can't borrow somebody else's relationship with their kids or their spouse or their parents. You can't borrow those things. You can't borrow faith. And one of the interesting things in this parable, Jesus is giving a sense of urgency. And remember we said last week, the word parable means parabole. It means to throw alongside. Jesus threw a, long, a story alongside their life. And it slipped past their defenses because they didn't realize what a profound story this is. And so they go along their merry way. And all of a sudden, the people who heard this parable thinking, oh, no, there's urgency. The door might be shut and I might be left out. And Jesus is saying, there's some things you can't borrow from another person. You've got to always be ready because the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is going to come at an hour you do not expect and you don't know when I may come. Not a one of us knows how long we're going to live. We just don't know that. So you've got to always be ready and you can't borrow somebody else's faith. 
William Gibson wrote a profound play. It's titled A Mass for the Dead. In this play, his mother dies, and William Gibson is bereft. He's an atheist. He's not a believer in God, but his mother was a strong believer in God and in Jesus Christ. And, and William Gibson kind of was nostalgic. He, he wished that he had his mother's faith. So after the Mass for the Dead, for his mother, he, he goes to his mother's home, and he sits in his mother's chair, and he takes out her spectacles that she wore, put on her glasses, and he picked up her dog-eared, well-worn Bible, and he flipped through it. Many of it was underlined, and some of it was marked in pen and pencil, and she'd written notes on the side, and he tried to see that Bible through his mother's faith, and it hit him right in the solar plexus. You can't borrow somebody else's faith. He would have to cultivate a relationship with God on his own. And one of the questions of the story is, does he ever cultivate a relationship with God? He admired his mother's faith, which gave her peace and calm in the midst of her illness, but, but he didn't have any faith for himself. And so he was bereft and grieving after his mother's death. And the question is, would he ever develop a relationship with God on his own? It's a question every one of us has to ask. Are we prepared for the vicissitudes of life? Are, are we prepared for the challenges of life? Every one of us has to, make has to meet challenges and make decisions, but are we prepared for them? And do we have God as a resource in our life as we meet the vicissitudes of life? Do you know the name Sully Sullenberger? January the 15th, 2009. Captain Sully Sullenberger, a U.S. Airways pilot, you know the story, took off from LaGuardia Airport en route to Charlotte, North Carolina. When he was on his way to Charlotte, they had just taken off from LaGuardia, and a flock of birds hit the engine, and both engines went out. And suddenly, Sullenberger, captaining this airliner, now going over New York City, he's trying to figure out what he can do. Does he have enough power to get back to LaGuardia? Should he go to Newark, New Jersey? Should he go to Teterboro, a private airport for corporate jets in, in New Jersey? Did he have enough power to get to JFK? He's trying to figure all this out, and he makes the decision that he's going to land in the Hudson River. Notice I didn't say crash into the Hudson River. He's going to land in the Hudson River, and he's assuming that himself and all the passengers are going to be safe and he goes and he lands in the Hudson River and New York's finest come out, the tugboats come out and the police boats come out and other boats come out. You remember the story, the passengers get out of the plane, they're all standing on the wings and they all are rescued. And it was not until all 155 passengers were rescued that Captain Sullenberger took his first interview. The member of the press said to him, Captain Sullenberger, how did you do this? You're a hero. He said, no, I'm, I'm not a hero. The co-pilot was great. The flight attendants were phenomenal. The passengers were unbelievable. They did what we said to do. The people in the tower gave me good instruction. And New York's finest came out, all these boat captains and police came out in their boats and rescued all the people. Everybody chipped in. Everybody had a role to play in this. It wasn't me. But then the interviewer said, but Captain Sullenberger, you're the captain. I mean, this was on your shoulders. How did you do this? Captain Sullenberger said, well, maybe this will help you get your arms around it a little bit. For the past 35 years, I've been making regular daily deposits 
in the bank of training, education, and experience so that on January 15, 2009, I could make a rather large withdrawal. Now let that lean against you a little bit. He'd been making regular daily deposits in the bank of training, education, and experience so that when he needed it, when the birds hit the plane and the engines went out, he could make a rather large withdrawal. Have we been making regular spiritual deposits in the bank of faith? Have we been making regular deposits to get to know God better in this life so that when we need God, when the, the decisions of life come or, or when the person we love most in all the world dies? And, and we've got to go on. How are we going to do that if we don't have a, a reservoir, a, a to have it made deposits of faith that we can make a rather large withdrawal you know, Jeff O'Grady and Jan as pastors and myself as a pastor, we have a fabulous privilege of walking with people down the road of life. And sometimes that road, of course, inevitably is going to lead to death. So we have the opportunity to sit with people at their bedside when they're dying. Sometimes it's a couple months ahead. Sometimes it's a couple weeks ahead. Sometimes it's a couple days ahead. Sometimes it's a couple hours ahead. And I've talked to many, many people when they knew they were dying and they didn't have very much time. And it's interesting to me, not one person has said to me, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. I wish I'd worked a little harder. But everybody says this. You know, Tom, I just wish I told my wife how much I loved her. I wish I told my daughter and son that, that I really love them with all my heart and I cherish them. I wish I'd reconciled that one relationship that, that's just not right. I wish I'd reconciled that relationship. Or Tom, you know, I, I wish I'd read the great passages of the Bible and that I'd internalized them. I, I wish I'd learned how to pray. I wish I knew how to pray. Because see, the clock of life is wound but once and no one has the power to tell just when the hand will stop at late or early hour. Now is the time we have. Now is the time we have. Live, love, work with a will. Don't wait until tomorrow for the clock may then be still. Well, we don't know why some people die at the age of eight and some die in the eighth grade and some die at 28 or 48 or 68 or 88 or 98, but I hate to be maudlin about it, but all of us are going to die. And the question is, are we prepared? Are we ready for the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says it's like a wedding banquet. It's pure, unadulterated joy. Jesus doesn't want anybody to miss it. So he wants us to get ready and, and light the oil of our lamps, which is faith. Faith is the oil he wants us to cultivate a faith so when we really need it amid the vicissitudes of life, when the birds come and knock out our engines and, and we're knocked off kilter, we won't falter, we won't crash. We'll be able to land safely knowing that Jesus Christ is with us. Does anybody here have some business to transact with God? To get right with God? To tell your family how much you love them? to tell God how much you love God, to ask God to come into your life, not only in the future, in the kingdom of heaven, but you know, heaven starts right now. 
Heaven is a daily relationship with God. When you cultivate a daily relationship with God, you have heaven on earth. You experience the kingdom right here in this life. And so you don't face decisions and challenges and problems alone. God comes with you. And then you're prepared for the kingdom of heaven. That's just the extension, the continuation of the relationship with God you've had in this life. At St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England, there's a gorgeous painting. And the painting is called, Behold, I Stand at the Door and Knock. It's a portrait of Jesus, and he's standing at the door of a, of a thatched roof hut. The leaves have overgrown it, and the weeds have overgrown it, and the ivy's overgrown the house. And it's curious that in the painting, there's no door on the outside. In other words, Jesus can't open the door. The door is on the inside in the painting. It's a very interesting painting, and it's gorgeous. One day, the curators of the museum around the church at St. Paul's realized that this painting was starting to deteriorate in its color, and it was very dusty and really dirty. They needed to have it cleaned. It hadn't been cleaned in, in decades, and they, they sent it out to be cleaned, and the, the specialist opened up the painting, and when the specialist took off the frame around the painting, he noticed these words were written by the painter on the back of the painting. Oh, Lord, forgive me for keeping you waiting so long. God loves us. And God doesn't want to be shut out of our life. God wants to be in our life. Isn't it true that when you've got a child or a grandchild of whatever age, you want to be a part of their life? You want to be in their life because you love them. And God is our ultimate heavenly father. God loves us more than we ever could even imagine. And God wants to be a part of our life. In the next life, in the kingdom of heaven, where there's going to be a heavenly banquet, but also in this life, because it's in this life that we prepare. We light the oil of faith to get ready for the kingdom. Forgive me, Lord, for keeping you waiting so long, because the clock of life is wound but once, and no one has the power to know just when the hand will stop at late or early hour. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know when the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is coming back. So, have we cultivated the oil now? Have we gotten ready? Are we prepared? Some years ago, a very sad event happened in a church I served. An eighth grade boy, eighth grade, was killed. His name was Johnny. And the parents asked me to do his memorial service. And it was tough because he's a young, young man. I did the service and proclaimed hope in the kingdom of heaven and the family thanked me, and after the service, Johnny's mother and father and I met. And we started meeting once a month. And we started, we cried together, we read scripture together, we talked about what heaven's like together. And on the one-year anniversary of Johnny's death, Johnny's mother and father and I sat in the chapel of a church in the pews, and, and Johnny's mother, I'll never forget this, she said to me, Tom... I've kind of started to come to grips with this. You don't have a right to children. I know that children are a gift. And I didn't have a right to Johnny. And I was Johnny's mother through the eighth grade, 13 years old. And I love being his mom. And I, it's hard to let him go. But I'm kind of coming to grips with this now after a year. But here's the one thing I can't figure out. I said, what's that? She said, well, 
I just feel so sorry for Johnny. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I feel sorry for Johnny because he died when he was in the eighth grade, and he'll always be an eighth grader. He, he never got to experience some of the joys of life. He never got to experience the best of life. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, he never had a date. He never went to the senior prom. He, he never rented a tuxedo and went to the prom. He never, he never played a varsity sport and got to run onto the football field or the basketball court and have the crowd cheer for him. He, he never was challenged academically, intellectually, because he had a good mind. He, he, never, he never played his best music. Johnny was a pretty good musician, but, but he never played his best music. He never went to college. He never got married. He never had a job. He never had children. He missed out on the best of life, and I just feel sorry that he'll always be in the eighth grade. Well, what do you say to a mom like that? I, I pulled up all the courage that I could, and I... I prayed to God for wisdom, literally, in that moment, silently, and I said, Linda, could I just say this, and I hope you understand how I mean, I, I, I'm sad for you, I'm sad for your husband, I'm sad for the family, I'm sad for Johnny's friends, but, but can I say it lovingly to you, I, I'm not sad for Johnny, I, I don't feel sorry for Johnny. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, Johnny is not in the eighth grade, Johnny is eternal. When we die and go to the kingdom of heaven, we now know all the secrets of the universe. Your son is not just 2,000 years old. Your son is eternal. He knows all the secrets of the universe. You talk about music. Johnny is experiencing the most glorious music of the angels and archangels that anybody could ever imagine. It's even greater than this quartet, and they're pretty great, but, but that music is phenomenal. And the, the music you had several weeks ago for Glenn's service was among the most sublime I'd ever heard. But as I said to that family that day, Johnny only glimpsed just a little bit of the kind of music that's in heaven. It's glorious, it's wondrous, it's absolutely sublime, it's phenomenal. And Johnny knows all the secrets of all the universe of science and art and sculpture. And C.S. Lewis says, heaven is so wonderful that in heaven it's like a book with the title page and the first chapter in which every chapter gets better than the one before. Johnny's experiencing all of that and someday you're going to be reunited with him. And what a reunion that's going to be. And his mother leaned forward and she said, and to think I was feeling sorry for him, and he's got all of this that he's experiencing. And that was the urgency that she needed and her husband needed. And they prayed with me, and they asked God to help them make regular daily deposits in the bank of spirituality and faith so that when they come to the end of their life and as they live their life, they'd have the strength to meet all the challenges of life and they would be alive in the kingdom of heaven forever. That was the urgency they needed to get right with God. I wonder what it will take for us to really get right with God and to let God into every aspect of our life. In this life, and the life to come. Remember, the clock of life is wound but once, and no one has the power to tell just when the hand will stop at late or early hour. Now is the time we have. Live, love, work with a will. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until tomorrow.
for the clock may then be still. Amen.